1159 at Radio Free America, and this is Uncle Sam with music and the truth until dawn. Right now, I've got a few words for some of our brothers and sisters in the occupied zone. The chair is against the wall. The chair is against the wall. John has a long mustache. John has a long mustache. It's 12 o'clock, Americans, another day closer to victory. And for all of you out there on or behind the lines, this is your song. All right, welcome, everybody, to our early edition of our daily gun show podcast uh where we go live uh each normally each weeknight at midnight eastern and we talk about guns for about an hour on mondays we go behind the scenes we talk about creating content uh, we talk about the, the nuts and bolts the software the, the equipment and the strategies of creating content we also like to interview second amendment advocates advocates and people in the industry tonight we've got toby on from cape gunworks uh, we're going to be having the description of this video an interview that toby did not too long ago just in april uh you did an interview with riding shotgun with charlie uh which is a great uh introduction to toby and the gun shop and the radio show and the shooting range we'll talk about all that tonight but uh the way we do our interviews is we talk quickly about who toby is and what he's doing then we'll ask him about why he's doing what he's doing and then we'll wrap it up with how he's doing it so just in case we can't come up with anything to say, which I doubt is going to happen, we are doing this live. So feel free if you're watching this live to uh, ask questions or participate in the conversation. But uh, it's not here about me on Mondays. Uh, let's talk to Toby. So thanks, Toby, for joining us. And uh, if you would, let us know a little bit about you and the shop, the range, and the gun and the radio show. Yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here and talk about uh, you know, this industry that has become my main source of income over the past eight years. And, uh, you know, I kind of grew up in construction and knew I was going to be a carpenter at like five years old. Uh, but at 12, I also was a Boy Scout and got introduced to guns and fell hook, line, hook, line and sinker on that. And just, you know, loved the shooting and the discipline around it. And never really got to do it. My parents weren't really into, uh, guns per se. In fact, I, I would actually consider them anti-gunners. <laughs> they uh, were like, yeah, it's not a good idea to have guns in the house. We're not going to do that. I'm like, well, how about a BB gun? No, we're not going to do that either. So, And maybe that was a good thing knowing my personality at the time. I was a little crazy as a kid, but uh, so I would have to settle for slingshots and blow guns and nunchucks and throwing stars, whatever I could get my hands on to run around the woods and have fun. But, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit. Um, I got my license to carry. I live in Massachusetts, by the way, if you're not, uh, familiar with Cape Gunworks, we're in Hyannis, which is on Cape Cod, which is the arm of, uh, Massachusetts that sticks out into the water. Oh, and I got to interrupt you. It took me a while. I mean, I'm not an idiot, but I had no idea what the Cape was. You kept saying the Cape when I was yeah. watching the show. Yeah. And I'm like, eventually I'm like, I got to look this up. I've kind of figured, but I wasn't sure. Right. Yeah. We, uh, we take for granted that everybody knows the Cape and it's like this little peninsula that sticks into the water and it's about a hundred thousand people year round. It's, it's pretty pathetic that we assume everybody knows where it is. But once you start narrowing it down to like Hyannis and Hyannis port and everyone goes, Oh, the Kennedys and, you know, that type of thing. So that's where we're from. But, uh, and I grew up here, um, born in Colorado, but that's another long story. Uh, ended up here when I was five and I knew I was going to be in construction and then fell in love with guns. 
while I was framing houses with a guy, we, uh, he was a kitchen table gun dealer. So he had his FFL and kind of just dealt guns out of his house for friends and family and himself really. And I was always like, Hey, this is awesome. Let's do a business. Let's buy a piece of property and, and, uh, put an indoor range and, you know, have a nice retail shop and we need this in our area. And he's going, you're a crazy kid, you know, take it easy. You know, you're never going to do that around here. You got to remember where you live. And so there was always a constant, uh, assault on our rights, if you will, from our area and the, you know, it was just a constant battle and, um, for rights and whatnot. And, and then the 94 assault weapons ban happened and it really affected us for the rest of time because Massachusetts made it permanent in 98. So we're about this, age, right? This is right when you're ending high school. Yeah. Or no, well, maybe gra- you're out of high school for a while. I'm out of high school. Yeah. yeah. I graduated in 93. Okay. Uh, I got my first guns in 94, right around the gun, you know, assault weapons ban. And I remember like being a new gun owner being like, yeah, I can finally have a gun. Oh my gosh, I can't have anything. I really been waiting for it, you know, and uh, magazine restrictions, the whole nine yards. Uh, but in 98, Massachusetts made it permanent. And uh, so we've been living under that 94 assault weapons ban ever since 94. Um, I still had this like burning, not really burning desire, but more of a interest to do a gun store and an indoor range and a training facility where we could um, equip and train people on the safe and efficient use of firearms. And that kind of became an idea when I was 16 and I went down to Florida. I think I went to a place, I think it's called Everglades Gunworks or something like that, but it might not even be there anymore. I never looked it up since, but it was down in the Naples area and I, I visited it and at 16, I was like, this place is awesome. They got a range out back and cool guns. And, you know, I just thought it was the coolest thing. Now, back then, this wasn't like a a rent, like a, what, what, like a place that people would go on vacation. This was just a plain old local range. Yeah. It was just a, well, it was a gun shop, uh, but it was, you know, your basic average small America, you for know, locals it wasn't something because like nowadays shop. people think of like recreational you go somewhere vacation and go to a machine gun rental right. place it wasn't something like yeah that. nothing like that in fact it was it was probably more like a a gun club type of range you'd see it an average indoor gun shooting range in america um but i i thought it was the best thing since sliced bread and it was not state of the art by any stretch of the imagination, but I figured just the fact that they had one indoors and connected to a gun store was like awesome. I'm like, this is brilliant. Um, and so I used to like look for real estate and find a place that would fit the bill. And I'd, I'd always, you know, kind of nudge my buddy and say, Hey, I found this old bowling alley in Harwich. You want to go look at it and we'll put a gun store in a range. And he's like, kid seriously stop like he was almost getting mad at me like just knock it off he's like what where's your money and i'm like i don't have any money and he's like well that's what you need to start a gun store and i'm like well i'll find it we'll figure it out you know let's do it and he's like he'd chuckle at me out you know it's nice to be young but good luck with that and so he never bought into it fast forward like uh 
20 years probably. A lifelong friend and I went to Vegas for the Mr. Olympia competition. And as you can see, they thought I was a, a, a contestant, right? You know, with all my, uh, I look like rope man, but uh, <laughs> so it was pretty funny to be there. But, um, and I talk about this a lot in the Charlie Cook interview, but uh, so we did a two day handgun shooting class at Front Sight that day. I mean, that, that trip. And on the plane back, we just brainstormed and like, we really need to do it. This is just after Sandy Hook. Um, we felt that there really wasn't a good opportunity in our area to host a class and train people on the safe and efficient use of firearms. Like every gun club we belong to was like, nah, you can't really do that here. Too much liability. Like go out and have fun, practice, but there's no instruction. And I'm like, this is crazy. We're sending people out to go shoot guns with no formal instruction or training. We're just making sure they have their finger off the trigger and keeping it pointed down range. We're not making them better shooters. We're not making them better advocates. And, you know, I think this is nuts, frankly. And I'm like, it wouldn't take, you know, a seasoned lawyer. I think a one-year law student graduate uh, who got the case to prosecute a negligent discharge at the local gun club would be able to hang somebody for, you know, okay, I, I was just picturing how this would go down in a courtroom. All right, so-and-so gun club. So you train people here regularly on the safe and efficient use of firearms, right? Uh, no, we don't allow anyone to come in as an outside instructor and teach people how to shoot guns. Oh, why not? Well, too much liability. Okay, so you'd rather people shoot guns without any formal training. Yeah, I guess so. Um, well, uh, you know, I couldn't see the logic in that. And it was an extremely frustrating time for me to, because I wanted to teach and host, you know, nationally recognized instructors. And, and you know, it was just no, 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 no. I'm like, all right, we got to build our own. So we kind of napkin sketched it out and we uh, launched this huge dream of Cape Gunworks. And we wanted to have a training facility, a retail shop, and a range all under one roof. And still didn't have any money, still didn't really <laughs> have any inroads in the industry. Um, but we figured if we, through brute strength and, you know, trying to be a good advocate in the community, that it would be met with open arms and with a warm welcome and, and people would support it. So we launched a GoFundMe. I did a little video. It's still on YouTube if you ever want to get a kick out of it. It's in my buddy's shed, which was double duty as a gun room with all these old guns and like a Hodgkiss machine gun that's like demilled and in the background. And it's so tight. I'm surrounded by like 400 guns. And I launched my pitch and we didn't get a single dollar raised by GoFundMe. I mean, not one dollar. What, so, what year was this? What year was this? This is in... Uh, 2013 oh dang okay yeah and so <laughs> i didn't i mean literally not 20 bucks and we had our membership levels all put out there what our range fees were going to be all this stuff and uh we were really excited we thought and everybody i pitched the idea to were like that's a brilliant idea that's great you know that's really good smart you're gonna you're gonna kill it I'm like great so we launch and everyone who saw the video is like, this is awesome. I'm so proud of you guys. I'm like, great. Like at the bottom where you put the credit card number in, that'll help us do this. 
They're like, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you on that. And so literally not a dollar came in. In fact, we started to like psychoanalyze it and like, well, maybe if we put some seed money in there, it'll show like right. people are supporting it. So yeah. Brendan and I whipped out our credit cards <laughs> and we each bought in so that it showed that someone would buy in. And then when GoFundMe took their fee out, we lost like 400 bucks or something like that. You know, we're like, all right, scrap that idea, mothball that. And uh, so then we just said, let's just start a mom and pop gun shop, which we did and kind of build it that way. Cause we had sat with several banks and they're looking at us like we're crazy. Like we, we had a good business plan. We knew it was going to work, but to convince bank executives to give us, you know, millions of dollars was pie in the sky stuff. So we figured roll up the sleeves, find a little retail shop we could open up in and we scraped together our life savings, both of us. And I think we were able to pull together like 40 or $50,000. So we got like a few guns in the case. And we spread them out really far to make it look like the cases weren't completely empty. We had a couple cases of nine millimeter, some magazines in a box, a couple holsters, and we hung a shingle out there. And, you know, people came in day one and bought guns and uh, word kind of spread. And that was how we got so, where we were going. So. Well, okay. I'm interrupting you. Now you're about, no, okay. you're, you're got to the range now. You're about to jump a couple of, locations and then end up with the radio show so let's jump to there just so that because yeah. they can go watch charlie's for some of that yeah just so i can speed so, up and we can chat something yeah, absolutely something. um so uh, oops i just hit the wrong button um so we were able to finally sell the memberships raise some capital found a building got a bank to finance it moved into the range and uh we we're trucking along during the Trump slump. So it was, it was pretty interesting uh, for that first few years. Uh, really not much going on in the gun world. Uh, businesses. Well, I might have forwarded right past the year. So what, what year did it open the doors? We opened the doors in the new range. Um, sorry about that. Uh, in 2017. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, so, April, 2017. No, so you had started the shop earlier at your woodworking shop. Yep. And then went to another location. And I know you pointed at the locations literally in with the with, on Charlie's uh, interview. But then yep. 2017, sorry to keep interrupting, is when you went to the big the big shop with the range. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So uh, we didn't want to open on April Fool's Day, you know, April 1st. So we we made it April like 4th, our official soft opening from members only. So we were open members only from the fourth to the ninth. Ninth was our grand opening. Um, and we had, you know, a bunch of people show up for that. And we had some, you know, big industry players come out, uh, you know, Smith and Wesson and SIG showed up and Mossberg and a couple other uh, vendors and manufacturers. And it was a big celebration. You know, we had food and bands and everything else. And, um, and then, we kind of just chugged along through the Trump slump. It was pretty slow and steady. Um, would have little blips on the radar here and there. And, uh, you know, then COVID happened, of course. Um, and we were still, you know, I shouldn't say we're chugging along. I mean, we were marginally increasing business year over year. So 
we were doing okay. We were hitting our goals and our marks. We were doing about what we were expecting. And then uh, COVID happened and we got shut down by the, uh, the state, even though they adopted the federal, uh, the federal guidelines and gun stores were considered an essential business under the federal guidelines. But our attorney general, uh, who's no friend to gun owners, uh, said gun stores are not essential. So she made sure we got scratched off the list, but she kept open the liquor stores, the marijuana dispensaries, and the abortion clinics and said gun stores are definitely not essential. They're going to be shut down. And so we, sh we were shut down for six weeks or eight weeks, something like that. I can't quite remember. It was right around April 1st, uh, April Fool's Day again, till uh, May 18th is when we were able to reopen. But we had to sue the governor, sue the attorney general, sue um, our local police chief and uh, a couple other people in, along the way in order to get back open. And um, so once once we were shut down, everybody who was kind of a customer was really, I mean, the phone was ringing off the hook. What's going on? What's going on? And we're like, we're shut down, but we'll meet in the parking lot next to the shop with a bag of, you know, ammo or accessories. We can't do guns, but we'll sell you whatever we got. And ammo was flying off the shelves, I'm sure as you remember. And so we were literally like meeting people out in the lot next to our shop, um, looking over both shoulders. Let me see your ID. Okay. And here's your paper bag full of ammunition that already have paid on the phone. And, and uh, I felt like we were breaking the law, even though we weren't. Um, and, and so we were doing that while we were closed down, but I started to do live streams and, and people were like loving it. Like I, at some point we were doing like four hour live streams without me taking a bathroom break or a drink of water practically. And it was going by like that just because there was so many questions and a lot of interaction. And uh, it was just, you know, sometimes we'd go out on the range and just shoot some guns. I'd do live tests and reviews. Other time it was just to talk and, you know, kick it around and, you know, what's going on out there. And, you know, so it was a really interesting time. And it also got our brain spinning that maybe we should continue this once we were able to open so we were doing daily live streams and we went to weekly after we reopened. And then I started to do a radio show. Uh, it just kind of was the natural outflow in a podcast. And, and so that was what we expected would be the natural outflow, excuse me. And so um, we were just hoping to keep it going. And uh, we ended up taking on a few more stations. We're on five different radio stations now and four uh, states, the podcast in three states. Yeah. Three states. Okay. So, um, but one of the radio, well, actually a couple of the radio stations reach into other states. Like the one in, that I say, the radio stations in uh, Florida, it actually covers Florida, Georgia, all the way up to like Hilton Head, South Carolina. So it technically reaches three states and a couple of the stations on that were on in Massachusetts reach Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. So actually I even heard someone was listening to us from Rhode Island. So it's, it's a bigger reach than just, you know, the state that the, the station broadcasts from. So 
yeah, I'd say it, it's at least five or six states that it's reaching. So that's a good thing. Very cool. Well, I kind of was hoping to have the format of chat quickly about who and what, right? So then talk mm -hmm. about why. So I've got a bunch of questions here. It's tough for me because I wanted to interrupt you about a million times here. So I made a couple of notes for myself here. People have been asking questions. So um, we'll probably go for an hour and then maybe if you're interested or you can stick around, maybe we can address questions after that hour so that it's maybe a sure. two section thing for the uh, podcast to keep it uh, you know, down to an hour. But um, so I'll keep those questions to later if that works. And then uh, you've kind of already addressed some of the, how, the why, but I think it's interesting to when uh, I was telling you off air, there was a podcaster named uh, Out of Order with James Kalita that would have two-way advocates only, like that's it, two-way advocates on. It would be about a 20 minute podcast and he would just let people go. And I thought that format was awesome because they didn't, they, they, it wasn't about some issue or they weren't being the expert, you know, to give a insight on something. So they would just talk about whatever they wanted to. And, and what I liked most about the, the, the ones that I appreciated the most, I guess, were the ones that went to their whys, why they started doing what they're doing. And, uh, and I got so much from that. So that's why I tried to, uh, to focus on that, or at least give you the opportunity to. Is, but you kind of mentioned, like, say, as we, as you mentioned, the origin story of the shop, and I kind of rushed you through the range part, which, I, I, if it's okay, we'll have you back on and we'll just focus on just that, because I'm a gun sure. shop junkie, and uh, dig, I dig ranges, and uh, I could literally talk with you for an hour just about the gun shop, kind of going from the, the three locations and then to the big location and what's in store, because that's that's another big part of gun shops, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get too far off the subject. So without putting it, what I, my goal here is to give you an open-ended question. So without putting you on the spot too much, but also putting you on the spot entirely, what's the what's the why? Why do you do this? You could have not made a gun shop. You could have definitely not put anything on the radio. You could definitely not stream live while you're recording your radio show and pay attention to the live stuff. You could definitely have decided to go with a whole different set of topics that would I would almost certainly bring you in more profits uh, you know just the rah 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 shake the you know wave the right flags um, you could have definitely just stuck with woodworking I'm guessing and just had a nice hobby but uh, what's the why thanks yeah no it's a very good question and um, I you know as a First things first, I'm, I'm definitely like a serial entrepreneur. I like business. I like starting businesses. I like running businesses. I like um, the whole concept of it. But having done the woodworking industry for so long or the construction industry, um, that industry can take a toll on you. Like I'll be doing a job for... Uh, six or eight months for one customer and it's um you know hundreds of thousands of dollars that at the end of the job the customer doesn't even like me anymore like you cost me a lot of money you know you have great ideas i like your stuff but it cost me a lot of money i don't even want to see your face anymore and it's not because you know there's any type of ill dealings there it's just when they see me it means dollar signs it's work again um, yeah it's gone from yeah. the front realm into the business realm yeah Right. Yeah, exactly. And when it came to the firearms, I was, it was more, yes, it was a business opportunity, 
yes, I could make a living at it. Yes, there's money to be made. And um, but more importantly, I I personally felt that the industry needed a pivot. It needed a change. It needed. Um, there's no difference between a gun store and a restaurant, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the product is concerned. If you can't, the only reason gun stores thrive with poor customer service is because of the high barrier to entry. It's, it took us a year to get our, all our licenses. It took a year and a half, really, if you think about it, to get all our licenses. It costs millions of dollars to build the facility that we, we have. So I guess, yes, we could do that and just kind of run on the reputation of, well, go ahead and do your own if you don't like how you're treated. That's kind of how the industry's been running along for a long time, in my opinion. And for the most part, I used to visit a lot of different gun stores. And in some cases, I would kind of hold my nose and buy a couple boxes of ammo and go out. But it wasn't like going to that good store that um, made you feel welcome and wanted your business and, you know, wanted to see you again. It was more like I was inconveniencing them and they had to get up off the stool and uncross their arms. And there was a lot of condescending, you know, like, oh, you don't know what the heck you're talking about. And why would you ever buy that gun? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And it was, you know, kind of intimidating for someone who loved guns. And I was like, this is frustrating. This is actually not how we perpetuate the Second Amendment long term, because it's not going to get new people interested. It's not going to be warm and inviting. It's not going to get you know women involved. It's not going to get kids want to get involved. And so that to me was the most, uh, the biggest reason for wanting to do it was to treat it like every other business should be treated. If I can't... Um, do business in an open free market with the way we do business, then I don't deserve to be in business. I don't deserve to be there. And I feel it needed to be earned. I felt it needed to be um, done in a way that was welcoming to all people. I don't care your political persuasion. I don't care your way of walk of life. I don't care what you believe. All I care about is if you want a gun, I want to put one in your hand and be the gun shop that supports you through the process. I want to teach you how to use it safely and efficiently. And then I want to be there to support you after the purchase for, for as long as you want to visit my store. And also I want to be a good example of what I think the responsibility of gun ownership comes with. So I believe there's a lot of responsibility that comes with gun ownership and that paradigm has changed a lot in my worldview. Like when I was 18 and I first got my gun and I lived alone and my front door was considered my gun safe. Then laws change and time changes and kids come along and you get married and friends start coming over the house. Now I'm like, maybe I should lock my guns up. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. So I, I started to do that, you know, and that was a big shift. It was a big paradigm shift for me. And you know, it was part of the part of the process in the gun store as well of wanting to just be a good advocate for um, responsible gun ownership, put on a you know good attitude and and teach something that's not always taught, which was 
in my opinion, um, you know, don't look to pull the trigger as a first resort of any type of altercation. Like when I first started shooting guns, when I was 16 to 18, 19 years old, the kind of the guys and the, and the guys at the club that I hung out with, uh, they were always like, yeah, yeah, you come across my threshold, you're going to go out in a body bag or yeah, I'm going to shoot first, ask questions later. And I don't dial 911 and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, rah, rah. And then all of a sudden it was kind of like, this is kind of stupid. Like if I drop the trigger or drop the hammer and pull the trigger, my life just changed forever. Financially, psychologically, um, you know, my family, my business, my, you know, my life is radically different. So I can't take this as light as I used to and just say, oh yeah, I don't dial 911. Like that's the dumbest thing I ever heard at this point in my life. And I do believe in defending myself with firearms if I need to, but is there things I can do in my life that'll minimize the need for me to use a firearm in a defensive situation? Yeah, there is. And let's start with that. And then, you know, maybe come up with a self-defense plan, maybe come up with, um, you know, uh, places I shouldn't go with a firearm, maybe, you know, not drink and carry a gun at the same time. So these are some things that I've like kind of evolved in my life over the past. Not that I drink hardly at all anyway, but some things that I've evolved in my life over the past 20 something years of owning a gun. And so that's really where I feel that I shine the most as an advocate, um, just by being a responsible gun owner and treating people like I don't take for granted the fact that they come to my shop and want to buy a gun. I, I feel that they could go a lot of different places. They can shop online now. And uh, sorry, my frog in my throat is Oh, now we got to do the whole thing over again. All right, I guess we'll keep going. All right, let's we do. <laughs> no, um, let's keep going. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, I don't take for granted the high barrier of entry to do what we do. I always want to set the gold standard. I want, I want to, the the literal philosophy page one paragraph one of my business plan was, um. Why would you not want to go to Cape Gunworks to buy a gun? Like, why would you go anywhere else? Like, that's what I wanted to create and to build and to make the place where all people feel comfortable as, you know, I can't please everybody in life, but if, if they don't feel comfortable, you know, I don't know what else I could do. Although I do keep an open ear to feedback and suggestions and change and whatnot, but um, I just really wanted to, create the gold standard that, and I'm okay if competition shows up in my town and they do it better than me and they do a, you know, a phenomenal job at doing what, what it is we do and they do it better. That's awesome. That's good for our industry because you have two people competing for the best possible outcome, not just to sell a gun, see you later, but to create a relationship that would have lasting, you know, multi-year and maybe even multi-generational impact on uh, the future of gun owners and the, the 
next generation of gun owners and the new people, like I saw a huge influx of people over the last two years that came in and I talk about it a lot on my radio show, like come in with their eyes wide open, looking around, like they don't even know how to step into a gun store and they are looking around and, Hey, how's it going? Uh, I don't like guns, but they're in my shop and okay, well, that's all right. What are you, what are you looking for? How do I buy a gun? <laughs> you know, they're at this weird turning point in their life where they don't believe in guns. They don't like guns. Their whole life they've felt that way. But here they are in a gun store thinking that they need to buy a gun. And that person is very vulnerable. If that person gets the wrong impression or the, the stiff arm jab as they come in the shop, we're going to lose them forever. But I also believe that if we can bring them in under the tent and say, yeah, man, I'm glad you're here. You're in the right place. This is the process. This is how it goes. I'm here for you. I'm going to stand right next to you. I'm going to be alongside you every step of the way. Then that person might be the next gun enthusiast that ends up spreading the tent and bringing more people into the fold. It's through grassroots and, you know, evangelism, if you will, of, you know, the gun way of life. And I've had great success with that. I feel in our, in our shop, all of my staff feels the same way and knows that's how we feel like that is the most important thing is to really make people feel welcome. And we also get tourism from all over the world that comes in during the summer months and, you know, same type never, of thing. They don't, I never they even know how to, but you're in a pretty, that? you're in a pretty historic and a pretty scenic and a pretty mm -hmm. like, uh, recreational part of the world fishing and stuff like tons of people probably show up there. Right. Yeah. We go from about, it used to be about a hundred thousand year round. Now it's probably closer to 200,000 since COVID because more people just live here permanently because they were working remote. Um, probably closer to 200,000 people in a 15 to 30 mile radius. And in the summertime, we go to about seven to 900,000 uh, of people who are in our area. So we almost tenfold, you know, the population. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's great to see people who come here from countries they're not even allowed to look at a gun and pose with a picture holding a, you know, a cool gun or something like that. And they don't even really speak the language, but the, you can see they don't know what to do. And I'm like, you want a picture with a gun? They're like, yeah, yeah. So we'll put a gun in their hand, take a picture, and they're all excited. Or if they speak English well enough, we can get them out on the range and shoot uh, with one of our instructors. And man, the smiles and the, you know, experience is just priceless you know so that that makes it all worth it for what we do and and um, i have a great time doing that and so you know that's really the why of what we do and and uh you know i feel that it's so important uh we were talking before we went live about a pistol team i used to shoot on when i started the gun store they basically kicked me off the pistol team and kicked me out of the gun club but when we started Cape Gunworks, I wanted to start our own pistol team and join the Cape and Islands pistol team and put another team in. I had 15 people ready to shoot on the pistol team. I had women, my wife was going to shoot, my friend's wife was going to shoot. 
they've never shot competitively. And this is the nerdiest, most boring shooting like you can do. It's 22 gallery, like Olympic style um, pistol shooting. It's, you know, it's fun. Don't get me wrong, but it is like the nerdiest type of it's the nerdiest slow shooting. and precise and yeah, I mean, yep. right? Like everything's small. It's three stages. You got a slow, a timed, and a rapid fire stage. Three magazines. Uh, I'm sorry, three uh, stages, ten rounds each, and you're shooting on a team. Top five add to the score sheet. If you're not in the top five, you're not going to be even, uh, you know, really contributing to the team score. But really what it came down to is a personal ad, you know, personal best trying to do, do better than you did last time, raise your average a couple of points. But more importantly, it was this type of shooting and this level of shooting is going to die with the generation that's currently doing it. And it's never going to be resurrected in my opinion. And so when I started a commercial range instead of a gun club, they had to vote whether to accept us in the pistol team. And it was like split and they voted no, like, nope, you're a commercial enterprise. We don't want you in the, on the pistol, in the pistol league. There were three teams that were like, this is nuts. The other three were like, no, we can't do this. And so uh, I was like the whole time, guys, this is the second amendment. We need to band together as a group of people all speaking one voice, not fight amongst ourselves. I have 15 people who have never shot competitively, who, you know, want to do this and would breathe new life and blood into this dying art, which is gallery competition. And, you know, whenever I'd go to the uh, competitions, it was an older generation. You know, I was probably the youngest guy on the team and there was no new life, no new life blood into this whole uh, type of shooting. To this day, they won't let me in. It's pretty interesting. Uh, but anyway, I think that's a terrible tragedy for our industry as a whole. And that, I think, needs to stop. Like, and we need to be warm and inviting and, you know, you know, extend the tent to people who are just curious or mildly interested and not shun them and stiff arm them away. But um, so we're doing our part there, but it hasn't worked yet. <laughs> right on. Well, it's awesome answer to the question. And I'm going to now uh, dig into some of my places where I would have interrupted you if we were just chatting. But um, just to that last part, yeah. And what can you do when someone has a, a grip on the, the established, uh, you know, in this case, uh, shooting club? What can you do? Well, you can create another shooting club, which is what you did. So thank you for that. Yeah. And right. when we did it, it, you didn't have to be a member to join. Like we wanted it to be public. You can walk in, plunk down 25 bucks and shoot for an hour. You can get one of our instructors to come to a class with you. You can do a range experience, shoot a bunch of different guns. Uh, we wanted to make it as open and accessible as possible. We didn't want to make you have to serve at the run. And don't get me wrong. I still love gun clubs. I'm, I'm not, this isn't really a over you know, attack on them. They're necessary. They do a lot of good work. They're awesome. I'm not really sure. And when you give them competition, you show them one that you were right about that aspect of or that element of it. And now they can adapt and continue as a competitor, which like you said, you're welcome, right? It's not like you're mm -hmm. trying to push nobody. You're trying to give them open their mind, open their eyes. Yeah. 
And if they want to, you know, I get it. A club situation isn't necessarily open doors. Maybe they have special times when non-members can come in and shoot and participate in a competition or do the skeet and trap shooting or something like that. And that's all cool. But I really wanted a real open access to people who want to shoot, don't know how to shoot. Let's get them going. You know, and that's really what it came down to. I'm going to go to a question from Gunpowder Beauty. Uh, she's in Missouri, I think, still. And uh, her question was from earlier in the chat. Uh, what's your favorite age, age of people to train? Young kids, older youth, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or older folks? I would say my favorite is probably, and this is a very selfish reason, but not for what you automatically come to mind but probably like a 20 or 30 year old woman, believe it or not, um, because they've, they're just teachable. That's really what it comes down to. They don't have any preconceived um, issues about like how to shoot and whatnot. And I've found them to be the most teachable age, although kids drink it up too. And they really, the smiles on kids, it's a lot of fun. We, we have 10 and older is kind of the policy at our range. We have gone down to eight um, if there's some kid who exhibits very good discipline and they listen. Um, but our official policy is 10 and older. We're going to be doing a youth rifle class coming up this summer to run like six weeks. And that'll be fun to get kids, you know, ages 10. And we're going to do it in two tranches, like 10 to 13 and like 14 to 16 something like that and uh teach them kind of the nra basics of you know prone kneeling sitting standing and uh but my absolute favorite is definitely women by far and i'd say the 20 to i would say the 40s or 50s into that there's really no age that i don't like to train women on um the the one thing i will say is as older women start to take up guns more and more, which they are. And it's great. I love to see it. Um, as they're a little bit more advanced in age, we have a few more challenges to overcome like vision and maybe grip strength and some hand strength issues. Um, if they're not in great physical shape, um, or in some cases, just the simple, like being able to get the gun kinesthetically aligned with the target as it relates to their body. Um, I've only found that to be a real problem in uh, some of the older women. And it, we work through it. We get to the, we get through it quick, as quick as we can, but I've had to dedicate a lot of time uh, where it doesn't seem to happen as much with the younger uh, ladies. Some of the older guys or guys tend to, you know, there's just a little bit of, just a little bit of male ego in all of us. And so sometimes they just don't want to listen or they listen, but they want to do it a different way, you know, have a little bit of an edge, you know, like I kind of know what I'm doing, even though I'm here trying to learn from you. Other guys are different. They're just, you know, sponge. They'll soak up everything you tell them. But um, I, I like, I like new shooters more than anything. The hardest, and I know this is a odd way to answer the question of what my favorite is, but the hardest is the guy who's, been shooting all his life, has guns all his life, maybe not shooting all his life, but has owned guns all his life and really just 
isn't a very good shooter and is trying to get to the next level and trying to untrain some bad habits. Obviously, that kind of speak goes without saying. But any t- anybody who's really green and new and a clean slate is is a pleasure to train. That blaming the tool thing has got to f- play a factor too. When you know a, mil- a million different tools in the toolbox, your mind doesn't go to what can I do better with my stance or my hands, but what tool could I grab to make this not right. my yeah, exactly. Um, another one from Rupan uh, says Cape Gun Works is awesome. I met a dude named Hakeem there that showed me a bunch of Hakeems in the back. I haven't been there in a while because it's so far away. Best prices I've seen in Massachusetts. Cool. I think he means uh, Rashid, who has a collection of Rashids. Um, but so which one? The Rashid is the 762 by 39? Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's an Egyptian one. Yeah, they're kind of neat. They're kind of like an SKS, except not. Yeah, right? yeah. Not it's a, like a cross between the VZ fifty-eight and an SKS, or a or a or a Hakeem, and a, yeah, they're very similar. I've only seen a couple in my time, like that came through shops, or that I've even seen at gun shows and stuff. I've seen them online, of course, but I haven't seen real life very often at all. Yeah, he's actually our range manager, um, so yeah. he's there all the time and doing a lot of good work all right well now that was everybody else's now all right dj has one here so uh dj play nice from oh, i forgot where uh rupan's from i should know but it's been a while but good to see a rupan i know he's back east somewhere uh he'll tell us here in a bit dj's in nebraska though he's asking massachusetts not exactly a gun-friendly state uh if you could change three things like restrictions or limitations etc about having a gun business in massachusetts what would they be um, the three that come to mind right off the bat are, um, boy, that's tough. Three is tough because it's a laundry list, but, um, we have this thing called the approved weapons roster, which makes it very limited what handguns we can buy. Um, they have to have gone out for testing. It's similar to California and they have to be sent to an independent lab and tested and pass like all these tests, like drop test, fire test, you know, um, they have to fire like 150 rounds consecutively without a malfunction test and all this stuff. There's a ton of stuff. And then after they pass the test, then they also have to meet the attorney general's regulations, which are this really mystical list of requirements um so basically we're told what guns we can and can't sell in massachusetts and it was a backdoor gun ban that they implemented in 98 and the attorney general at the time was basically trying to make it more restrictive to buy guns in massachusetts without uh so they use consumer protection as the bludgeon to do that so that would be number one just get rid of that list Uh, because it's ridiculous that we can't buy the most popular guns in America here. And Firearms Policy Coalition is actually doing a good job of a lawsuit. It went to district court, federal district court, and got kicked out, dismissed. But they're appealing that and trying to get it up to the Supreme Court so that any state that tries to impose these type of regulations will be found unconstitutional, as it should under 
McDonald and Heller decisions. Um, so um, that would be number one. Number two would be definitely the assault weapons ban um, that has really gone to the extreme level. Uh, everybody lived up with the assault weapons ban for 10 years in the country. Nobody in that 10 year period said you can't buy an AR-15. They just said you can't buy an AR-15 without these features, with these features. So the, we all know what they are, the evil features of, um, you know, threaded barrel, flash hider, collapsible folding stock, you know, bayonet lugs, ma magazine, detachable magazine, pistol grip, et cetera, et cetera. Well, our attorney general in 2016 said, oh, no, 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 that's not what that means. That means that any gun that is similar or interchangeable or compatible with an AR-15 and all the other enumerated guns are illegal to sell in that state, period. Like, so we can't sell any variation of AR-15, any variation of AK-47, whether it's been neutered for sale in our state or not. You can own it. It's just effectively frozen. You can own it, but you can't sell it to anybody. Nobody can buy it from you. You can still sell it privately if it was made if it, the original transaction took place prior to that 2016 date, she said, basically you're all felons who bought AR-15s prior to 2016, but we're going to look the other way and we'll allow you to continue to sell them as on a private sale, but a dealer can't sell them. So if somebody has a 2015 AR Bushmaster that they bought, want to trade it into us, we're like, sorry, I can give you pennies on the dollar, but you're better off selling it on the private market or, um, you know, keeping it because there's no way for us to sell it except to law enforcement and law enforcement's not subject to the assault weapons ban anyway. Uh, so they, they basically, um, they basically are exempt. So they don't want to buy a neutered gun to begin with because they can have whatever they want. So yeah, I would make the assault weapons ban go away. And then thirdly, uh, would probably be, um, the restriction on suppressors like uh, and machine guns are legal, believe it or not, but the uh, they're not legal to shoot unless you possess a machine gun license. So those I, if I could wrap those two together, it would be the the ban on suppressor ownership and the machine gun kind of ban, if you will, uh, because we can't rent machine guns unless you have a machine gun license, which is very hard to get. In oh, in other words, you couldn't even have it for rent on the range because in order to possess or hold it in your hands, you got to have that license and only a few people bother to get that license because it's no correct. Problem. Yeah, correct. And we've, we've kind of skirted the line of that a little bit because what is possession? Like the working legal definition of possession is a under the like tech most technical aspect of that it's you have it in your hands and you can legally take it home with you that's kind of a working definition like a blue collar definition of possession um so temporary possession putting it in your hand doesn't meet that criteria but massachusetts takes it to the extreme that by physically handling it you are now in possession and therefore, you can't do that unless you have a green card. So we actually tried to kind of get around that rule and tethered it to the bench with like a chain and lock so they could never, quote unquote, possess it because oh, they can't brilliant. take it out of the boot. Yeah. 
So uh, we, we used to do full auto Friday. And then my lawyer was like, the attorney general's already heard about this. And if I were you, I'd knock it off. I'm like, why? How, you know, are they in possession? He goes, look, do you have like a hundred grand to defend yourself if this goes bad? And I'm like, or do you want to use the hundred grand that you may or may not have to like promote your business? You know, is it worth it? And I'm like, dang it. Like, this is ridiculous. So we, we kind of went back on the, on the full auto Friday thing. And we equipped a bunch of guns with binary triggers instead. So, which is, you know, we all can make a good analogy of what that's like. Well, right on. Well, good. Let you wrap those two. Is there a third then? Well, the third was the A was the uh, handgun roster. The B was the assault weapons ban. And the C was the, the third was the machine gun suppressor ban. If you want to keep going, I could give you some other ones. But I thought that was um, number two. Okay, I missed it. No, because no, I've got a bunch of questions for myself. So we're getting close to the hour, um, but I got a bunch of them. So let's make it more of like, you know, kind of speed rounds, I guess. You don't have to elaborate yeah. on every one of these. But I, way back from when you first started to uh, uh, discuss uh, being a kid, really, uh, you mentioned uh, your parents. I'm wondering, because right at the end there, you said, but, you know, maybe that wouldn't have been a good idea because of the way I was a kid, right? So that's what I'm wondering. Do you, you think your parents, I mean, if you know or not, were as much anti-gun or if they were just like, it wasn't the right time for you as a kid to have something like that? I think uh, neither of my parents grew up around guns. They had no, you know, neither of them had guns in the house growing up. They just knew what they knew based on what the media told them and thought guns are bad like they right. weren't like an activist about it that's what i mean um, like they weren't like yeah. unless somebody usually has something that affects them or for some reason you know they get some advantage at work for being anti-gun so they they do because they get a bonus or a free t-shirt or something um right th that's what i was wondering it, they, they just didn't they weren't gun people and right. it wasn't something that they were familiar with so it was more of that yeah and okay. when i when i turned 18 i ran down to apply for my license to carry and then my mom was, even license. I was at but i was the same way i was there before the store opened when i was 18 buying my shotgun because yeah. i could legally buy my shotgun right. was that your first gun then uh my first gun was a uh sks um believe it or not and that you had got before uh, the buying one at a shop then what's that in other words you got one before buying one at the shop yeah yeah, yeah okay. I, well no, no. I So in my state, you have to have a license period to buy a gun. So oh. I applied when I was 18 and they held it for six months. So as soon as the license came in six months later, I like ran over a buddy's house and we went to the local gun guy up the road who had like a kitchen table, uh, you know, FFL and saw what he had in his inventory. And he was this old timer and he's like, I got that gun over there take it home with you. It looks good on you. And it was an SKS. And I'm like, Oh, this thing's cool. And you know, he gave so, it to you? no, 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 no. I paid oh. him 79 bucks and nice. You know, what year? Yeah. That what year? 94, 94. Just yeah. to rub it in 94, $79. And they thought like, yeah, that'll keep you happy. It's a BB gun basically. And the ammo's cheap yeah. or was it cheap back then? I it never was for, it cheap. was for a couple months. And then it went through the roof because of the 94 assault weapons ban. Um, so 
I ended up having to buy a case of corrosive 762 by 39 and it was like 1200 bucks. It was ridiculous. It was some outrageous amount of money. I, I split it with a buddy. I think we paid 600 each and uh, got thousand rounds. It was over a buck a round or something. And uh, it was outrageous. I, I might be misremembering, but it was all the money in the world to me at the time. And uh, then my parents didn't know I bought a gun. I, I still lived at home at the time. And uh, so um, I had to kind of smuggle it in and then I fessed up and they were freaking out. And, um, but I moved out shortly thereafter anyway. So it never really was a big deal, but um, I just think they were overprotective growing up, you know, and, and worried about me, you know, doing something stupid with a gun. But Well, that's the frustrating part. And that's what I think is that as someone who's been paying attention to uh, the kind of scene for a while, um, the, the, un, the, what are you going to say? Like people that aren't aware of firearms that would, their impression is going to be from movies and the news. And that's not going to be a good impression. So the education that's going on in the last few years um, from lots of organizations, lots of different ways is making strides. So it's real difficult for people to be in the dark anymore, you know, cause there are so many like yourself, like yourself in the shop and, you know, somebody who doesn't want to have anything to do with guns. Yeah. They can stay isolated, but anybody that's got any kind of uh, curiosity is going to find a welcoming shop, hopefully, and, uh, get that introduction or orientation to at least understand what guns are and more importantly, what they're not. And I hope that's, I'd see that as being a trend, but obviously it's tough yeah. to get a finger on that. Um, I was going to ask quickly, the front sight trip, was that before, after? Where did that fall into the your kind of evolution of your idea for the shop? Well, we were starting to get serious about thinking about doing a shop, me and my friend. And so we're like, let's go to front sight. We're going to Vegas anyway. And uh See, so this would be the beginning of the shop, the first shop in the in the in the wood shop. Yeah, this was before that. Yeah. Okay. So this was twenty. I think it was September of twenty thirteen, and when we incorporated. No, I'm sorry. It might have even been twenty twelve, because I think it was September twenty twelve, and we incorporated in February of twenty thirteen. So um, we went to Frontside because I had been carrying a gun for like fifteen years. And I had never taken a formal training class because I thought I was all set. You know, I thought I was good. I could take the gun out of the holster, drive out on target, hit the hit the target, put it back in the holster without shooting myself in the leg. And I, I literally carried almost daily for 15 years without taking a formal training class. And then when I went to Frontside, I was kind of like, dang, I'm an idiot. I can't believe I've carried a gun for 15 years and never took a formal training class. And... It wasn't because I was dangerous or unsafe, but there was so much more that went into the um, critical dynamic incident than I had ever really thought about. And, and so um, I, when we came back, we were both very impressed with their organization and their operation. And I thought this place is professional. They do it right. And, you know, if we're going to do something, we should, we should make it, uh, you know, state-of-the-art top-tier facility and uh my buddy was like you're nuts and i'm conservative so we'll make a good pair and good business partners and that's based on you know years of friendship and so it, it worked out well 
And that's the dude that went to front site with you. Yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. And then, um, so you were there in like 12 or 13, I guess. So you were there about an, a year before the, uh, the rental places really kicked in in 2014 or 15, they really went nuts and started to compete against each other. But there were a couple of those rental places already there. The gun store was already there. And uh, the one that's out on the way to uh, Pahrump, that last shop on the way to Pahrump is an uh, indoor range. It's kind of a small one. Did you happen to stop at any of the Vegas ranges when you guys were out there? We didn't because we were already kind of stepping on my buddy's toes, who was the Mr. Olympia guy. Right, you were and, there for uh, his gig. Yeah, right, for his we were there for him and to support him. And we're, we ditched him for two days to go to Front Sight. And uh, I felt bad. I wanted to go really bad, but he... Um, he was like, what, what are you going to do now? So we decided to spend some time with him and do the things that, you know, he wanted to do while we were there. And, um, so it, it they weren't it, a it thing. Was, yet. It wasn't like there was billboards or anything that would even have alerted that they were there other than maybe a taxi thing from the gun shop. Yeah. Gun we shop. saw some ads for it and stuff and we knew it was there, but we couldn't break away and make it happen. I think you kind of answered this one already, but was it right away going to be a range or was it a shop first and then a hybrid into a range or was it going to be a range first and then a shop to support it? Or did it, was it the same thing? Was it a range shop right off or did you? Originally? Yeah. From day one, we said, if we're doing it, we're doing it right. We're doing it big. We're going to go range retail and training all under the same roof. But we had to break it into a two-step process because I couldn't convince a bank that it was a good idea without having ever sold a gun, you know okay. what I mean? So, so it was more of a business plan decision to break it into a two-step process. So we started the gun shop first, got a good customer base, and then found a building that would be suitable and, and got a bank to finance it now that we had two what years of sales. Before? What was the building? A, what was that building? It was before? a bank. It was a bank. Um, oh, no. Oh, it was the a building bank. that we ended up Yeah, buying. sorry. The range, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, it was a uh, paintball skate park, indoor skate park, and oh, okay. laser tag facility. Yeah. So no uprights. It was just a big uh, free, uh, what they call it, open structure type of. Roof. Yeah, it was. It was actually pretty chopped up because they had the three different playing. You know, the skate park was one side, and the laser tag in the back, and then the. The basement was the paintball area and then like a retail shop up front. So it was oh, kind I of catacombs. You got it all gutted out. So you had to do we some. We did. Yeah. Oh. We ripped it right down to bare, bare walls and remodeled the whole building and purpose built it for our, for our needs. Well, I tell you what, hopefully I'll have you on again and we'll chat just specifically about their shop and the range because I could sure. go for hours about that if you're down. Um, yeah. Was there the, the part about the GoFundMe? Blows my mind. Have you heard of the um, the shop called? Um, um, I'm drawing a blank. The one in Maryland, um, the Machine Gun Nest in Maryland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they did a crowdfunding also. Hmm. Uh, so I've I've always been impressed with uh, shops that go with the crowdfunding. I'm a big fan of crowdfunding with the potential we've got there as a community. So was there a campaign that you saw that you're emulated there or did you just try that because you had heard of it or what was the story with the campaign? No, I just, I just thought that like, we don't have the money to open what we wanted to do. And so 
people all tell me this is a great idea and they're like, yeah, we'll support you. And this is going to be awesome and can't wait to see it happen. Somebody needs to do it. And so we're like, all right, well, here's how we do it. We're going to, cause we were originally trying to open the big facility from day right. one. Right. So we're like, we got to raise a, you know, a couple million bucks. Let's start off with a hundred thousand dollar campaign and hope it goes crazy. And so we gave it our best effort and our best foot forward and launched. And we had a couple of investors that we thought were going to jump in and be silent partners in and, and it just fell as flat as flat can be. And, and like I said, we didn't raise a dime through crowdfunding. In fact, it cost us 400 bucks at the end of the day. <laughs> so I'm like, man, we're heading in the wrong direction. And we had to rethink the business plan a little bit. Um, I really thought that, you know, if I was more of a known entity at the time, maybe it would have, but. Yeah, knows. there's got to be ways to, yeah, 2020 hindsight, right? But that's. Yeah. Um, well, that's a, an interesting aspect. I didn't know about that from Charlie's interview. Um, I think it kind of got mentioned it uh, in your kind of description, but the start of the live streams, was that because you were watching somebody else live stream? Again, was this like uh, somebody mentioned it at the shop? Um, I know Shooting Gallery New England does stuff. So was, it, was it somebody mentioned it or you just had the idea? Or? No. No, I just, I just thought about it. Actually, it, it really happened by accident. I was like walking around the shop one day and I just picked up the phone and went live on Instagram and was like, oh, hey guys, just, what's that? Because you were digging Instagram before you got shut down over there. Yeah, yeah, we were good at Instagram for a while there. You were running that was our best, our best social media platform. We had the most followers and everything else on it, but. Well, you were at a good time. That was a good time to be on Instagram. That's when yeah. a lot of growth happened. But so then, yep. okay, so you did the Instagram live and then it's kind of limited in time yep. and situation. So then you were like, where else can I go? Oh, on our YouTube? Yeah, so we started, uh, we'd kind of mix it up. I'd do live on YouTube. At one point, I had three phones set up in front of me um, or I'd have a web camera with YouTube and then like a phone set up with Instagram live and a phone set up with Facebook Live. Um, and I was just kind of like, because people were like, hey, are you on Facebook? Or hey, are you on, you know, I could never get it right with one live stream being, meeting as many needs as I needed to. Entity, and like we talked about, an alternative would have been to go through a platform that streams out to multiple platforms, but you were doing it one platform per phone. And then you'd have yeah, to keep going for each platform then. <laughs> right and i'd be reading the comments on this one and jumping over to the comments on this one oh, wait this one's and, not live yeah like yeah that kind of... exactly and then like would be like hey if you want to follow us as we go out onto the range and shoot a gun you got to jump over to instagram because i can't carry the computer and two phones out that you know so it was, it was really a very pedestrian offering of you know <laughs> i mean limited technology and but the guy, Professor Claus, I like to refer to him in our live broadcast, um, kind of came from that background. So he was pushing me like, dude, you got to do this. You got to do this. He uh, used to be a producer on a show and and he's like, like, this is going to work. Like, we should do it. And I'm like, OK, what's it going to cost? Well, I can get this software for 800 bucks and we'll get new microphone and new this and new that. And I'm like, oh, come on. Just can't we go live on our phone? And he's like, no, let's make it a little better, you know? And he pushed me and, and he produced it. We got a mixer and a couple mics and ear cans and 
So um, it was starting to work and people were appreciating it and uh, thanking me all the time for it. And then people would come in the shop and be like, hey, you're the guy on YouTube. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm the guy on YouTube. Like, you know, it was just kind of funny, but um, we'd just try to stay relevant and give people updates and answer their questions. And everyone was sitting at home and they needed that like outlet to, to do it. So we just figured we kind of fell into it. It wasn't this like brilliant plan that we had in place. Um, I never dreamed I'd be doing a radio show. So, but here I am. Right on. And again, we'll chat again, hopefully uh, maybe even a third time and chat about specifically the podcasting and the radio show. Um, I got into guns when I was a kid. I got into uh, shooting again whenever I started getting into the internet around 2000, the late nineties there. And uh, one of the first people I met here in Tucson uh, was Charles Heller who does Liberty watch radio, which is a show here on set on Sundays. And, uh, and I've been paying attention to radio shows. There's a couple of syndicated ones, and then a bunch of the advocates out there are doing radio shows. And I think there's a lot of value to a radio show. You know, it goes out to people in cars and people in waiting rooms and people that uh, are doing stuff that are working and have a radio going instead of a YouTube thing. But uh, most of them, we we're kind of talking off air, most of them are doing it as radio shows, and then the podcast is sort of an extra and they pretty much struggle to keep track of the podcast portion of it. Uh, so you're doing that in stride. You're definitely, you know, your team and you are competent in, you know, getting the the podcast, the radio show, being aware of what's going on with the radio show because you have guests and call-ins and questions being thrown at you out of nowhere. But then also during those lags between, you know, commercial breaks and station identifications and all the stuff that happens in a radio show, sometimes, you know, you're watching the live chats and stuff. So you're, that part of it makes it really interesting. So, um, and then the fact that you're uh, got a bunch of reach, there's a lot of potential there. So, um, without getting too much into that, um, how long then the radio show's been going, or how long has the radio show been going? Uh, about a year and a half. So, the radio portion, we've been doing the live streams. If you want to count that as part of it, since for about two years. No, no, I mean but, specifically taking it out to the radio station. And that was yeah, because you started yeah. doing the, the guest host or the guest port, uh, guest segment with uh, the radio, the established radio shows out there. And they kind of helped you get the foot in the door there, or I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, after the pandemic and we decided, like, what are we going to do with this? Am I just going to keep doing live streams on social media? or YouTube, or am I gonna do a podcast or should we do a radio show? Um, we had a, we have a really good local talk radio station in our area that I've been a guest on a couple of local guys shows before. And every time I'd go on as a guest, the phone lines would light up. I mean, like people wanted to talk guns and I thought that was pretty interesting. And I, I used to say, don't phone calls drive business? And they said, yeah, like, this is amazing. And so I said, well, have me on anytime you want. And he would have me on a lot after a shooting would happen or a legislation would happen or, you know, gun control was talked about or, you know, bump stock ban or something like that. And I would just go on and opine for 15 minutes on his radio show. This is going all the way back to when we even started Cape Gunworks before we were in the new location. And I, I had the idea that 
like gun talk makes good radio, but I didn't think I was going to be the guy to do it. I was kind of like, so someone should do this. This is brilliant. You know, this is cool. Someone should really do this. And I was kind of captain clueless. Like I was the guy that should probably do it if I'm going to do it. But I thought it was somebody else's job, not mine. I already run two businesses and like didn't have time and didn't think I had time. Um, but you make time for what is important. So uh, when we just inquired with that local radio station, we said, how much is it to buy an hour of radio on a Saturday? And we're like, maybe this could be like a part of our marketing budget. And we could say, hey, an hour radio cost us X and we just won't buy advertising from another radio station or something because we'll do our own show. We'll see where it goes. And we did it there. And then we branched out to two other stations locally. And we were like, wow, this is pretty cool. People are enjoying it and having fun with it. And we're kind of podcasting it as well. Um, and then a big radio station in our area asked me to come on his show a couple of times. And I did. And then um, he became a guest on my show. This guy, Howie Carr, he's a big national talk radio show. And uh, he uh, was a guest on my show. And it was really fun to have him on, and he's become a good friend. Is he and like then, a local show, or is he like a David Letterman type of show, or is he? He's a local talk radio show that is on radio, and uh, if you Google it, the Howie Carr Show, you'll see it. Um, he's very political, very you know, it's politics, it. news talk, you know, that type of show. But um, then his, like one of his associates, he has another girl that does a show called Grace Curly that does the show before his from noon to three and his is from three to seven. So we started to do this episode. You've heard it, uh, the two, a Tuesday on her show as a guest. And then they asked me to guest host her show when she was off one day. So I did all three hours of her show and it was a lot of fun and there was a lot of calls, a lot of interaction. And, uh, then I got to guest host the Howie car show, which is huge. Like that's national audience. And, I forget how many stations, I think it's 27 stations or 40 something stations. And uh, they also live stream it and all that. Um, but that was kind of a really pivotal moment for me that I felt like kind of put me on the map a little bit. Um, and they've asked me to come back and I'm going to be uh, doing the Grace Curley show again in July. Actually, they're both coming to our shop on this Friday. I was going to say, they're going to remove it at the shop, right? They're doing their yeah. whole show from the shop yep yep this friday so they'll be there from noon to six um doing her show and his show uh they've done this several times at our shop and it's so a lot of fun and normally you're on her show on tuesdays and then yep. you cover it's whatever day they're off or whatever but in this case right. they're gonna do their friday show the end of the week show at your shop yeah cool. yep. are you gonna and, have them in the in the main shop the one now? are you going to have them in the main shop or are you um, going to have them? no it's in the classroom so okay. we have a big classroom let's probably i don't know two thousand square foot classroom or something like that and uh we can fit you know 150 people easy and so a lot of people show up that would never and this is a really cool thing getting back to the why um sorry to backpedal so much but no go for it people that there's people that come just to see them because they're listeners but they're not gun people you know what i mean 
Yeah, if it was at the uh, VFW hall, they'd be there. If it was at a Walmart, they'd right. be there. They don't care. They're there to see them. So you're you're facilitating it. Now they're going through a gun shop to get there. Exactly. And one of the coolest things is I got a email from a lady who said, like, I visited your shop because I wanted to go to the Howie Car Show once a couple of years ago. And I was blown away by the shop and the warm, inviting atmosphere. And I ended up signing up for a class to get my license to carry. And then I did a private lesson with one of your instructors. And I'm telling you now, I'm going to buy my first gun this week. And I'm so excited. It's become a hobby for me. And I'm really like loving it. And thank you for having Howie and Grace come to your shop. Because otherwise, I would have never stepped foot in a gun store. Now it's this like big hobby for her and her girlfriends to come to the shop and shoot. Um, so I'm like, hey, that's a win. You know what I mean? So Dude, that's, that's the win because now when they try to marginalize all gun owners or the property we choose to possess, that lady potentially is going to call up a representative and go, hold on a second there, person. This is me right. and these friends. Let us introduce you to some gun owners. Hmm. Right? They're going to have the tendency. They know how the system works. They're going to be active. So that's the awareness that keeps on giving. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, so... Before um, I was asking about the uh, ranges in Vegas specifically, but now that you own a shop and you've had it for a while, do you go to other gun shops? Do you visit other shops? And is it something? Yeah, you make whenever it? I travel, I, I actually uh, created a pretty good relationship with a shop up in New Hampshire um, because we're both part of the same buy group. We met traveling. We, I go to Fort Worth twice a year to the NBS buy group. And um, I just met a guy and he's like, Hey, I know about you. Cause one of the guys that works for us used to live in your area. I'm like, Oh, cool. And would go out to lunch and got to know each other. And then would kind of start to share information and brainstorm about methodology and concepts and uh, you know, best practices. And he shared, we, we actually got very uh, close as far as a, uh, professional relationship is concerned would share financials with each other would share um, you know best practices and like what do you do about this oh we do this and this is how we handle it this way and it is something that I haven't quite figured out how to do with shops in my area but I think that it really would help our industry as a whole to not look at gun shops as a island unto themselves yep. but as a you know network like a, is it part of yeah, the network is the nodes on the infrastructure that it, it is the second amendment. Yeah. And uh, the, there's a gun shop that I opened up in the same town of as, and uh, I saw one of the the owners at the, at a trade show and I, and I saw, I was in the elevator with him. Hey, how's it going, man? And I stuck out my hand. How you been? And I'm so green. I've been at this for all of six months, you know, and he just stares at my hand. I'm like, Oh, we're not going to shake hands. He goes, no, we're not going to shake hands. I'm like, okay, great. I guess I know where we stand. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I found that incredibly uh, telling of what I was getting myself into, number one. But number two, like the things that need to change. Like that is really strange like I thrive on competition. I'm a competitive person by nature. And I feel 
you know, that competition makes me stay on the cutting edge of what I need to do. Otherwise I'll get lazy and I'll be, you know, I won't put in the effort that I need to, but if there's a reason to get up in the morning and go grind it out. Um, and it's not just cause I want to put someone out of business. I don't believe in that. I believe in a rising tide lifts all boats. So if I can be better at what I do, it might make them be better at what they do, which might make me better. You know, it's a back and forth, which the customer wins. Yeah, that's happening there. Yeah, is the gauge of there's more gun owners on board. Right. Um, I'm going to point out one thing that I uh, just made a note to myself as you were saying the multi-generational gun owners thing and kind of what I was just mentioning here, you know, there's a, there's an echo there because again, when you've got people that have, you create a shop, you think you were mentioning how you're trying to create a shop that people could, uh, you know, bring their kids and grandparents can show up and stuff. And again, that just, those are voters. Those are people that are aware and get offended when they're marginalized, whenever an individual decides to do something you know, horrible and uh, the politicians jump on it. So, you know, that's, thanks for that. Uh, uh, People coming in and saying, you know, kind of having that bewildered look, let's say, and, you know, obviously being a novice at a gun shop, you did a video not too long ago on the kind of layers of infringement you've got in Massachusetts, kind of a funny video. The only, the only, thing I had, the only suggestion I had is to make it less than a minute and make it stupid vertical. So it could be a YouTube short, does get a lot more reach, but, uh, and then, you know, a minute on Instagram gets a lot more reach usually, but, um, if, you know, just throwing it out there as an idea, it would be cool to see one, uh, you know, just to intro, like how to, you know, I'm a new gun owner and I'm sure again, if we have a conversation about gun shops, you've had to see a lot of different kind of gun, a lot of different people come in the door to a gun shop. They probably, you know, follow maybe 12 categories or something, but, you know, there's a lot of different people that show up and there probably could be, and I guess what I'm saying is there probably could be more than one video for that, right? Like if you're oh, new to guns or if you're new to training or if you're new to something. I was gonna, yeah, we it. are going to, we're going to do the shorter version of that video. And we're also going to do the next evolution of that video of that guy who just got his license. Now he's going to the gun shop to make his first purchase and what that looks like, you know? Okay. Right on. Um, yeah. That's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Have you so, heard of Cody firearms experience in Cody, Wyoming? No, I don't think I have. Uh, like I kind of mentioned off here that I've driven around a bunch and looked at gun shops. There's this place just outside the West or the East gate of Yellowstone. And when you mentioned your location and I'm not familiar, I've never been to Massachusetts. I don't think. Or if I did, it was to a Civil War battlefield when I was a little kid. Um, so I don't know the area. But when you mentioned the influx of uh, tourists and how the town will expand, uh, that reminded me when I was talking to the folks at the Cody Firearms Experience, that's like literally outside the gate. You can It's the, one of the last buildings, one of the last businesses you see before you hit the park, uh, park entrance. And it's got a cool welcoming sign. You want to shoot a gun and uh you can shoot gun like a cowboy and all this and then you go in there and they've got a range a rental range but it's almost a, it is a museum it's they've got a lot of information about the guns so there's so many international tourism they are tourists they said they it's, i think it was either through six or three million tourists come through you know during that couple of month period when it's you know, possible to even get there because it snows out during the summer and i just thought that is an interesting aspect of the shop that i hadn't thought about before but again having your shop there 
is also an ambassador to all of those I, I want to say temporary but like transient gun or people too, you know because i think there's a lot to be said for having a, sh a shop on the side of the road that's a gun shop and it's not hidden and it's just you know on the side of the road and other businesses around there um so someone who's international or from another part of the country oh there's a gun shop here even if they have no inclination at least they know gun shops are a little bit more normalized right right yeah and it's fun to get the crowds from other countries because not everyone you know, agrees that people should have AR-15s and AK-47s when they come to our shop. And sometimes they're blown away by it. They're like, but it's okay to have like side-by-side, -side, you know, Parker shotguns and hunt upland game. And then we'll get into the nuance of that and talk about it. And then it's funny because sometimes they're like, but you don't have suppressors? Like, are you crazy? That's That's like, you know, it's not even nice to shoot a gun without a suppressor. That's unkind. You know, I'm like, Hey man, I live in the state that I've been given here. So, <laughs> but it is pretty funny. So with that, I think I've hit all of my questions that I had uh, kind of uh, written here. So I didn't interrupt as we we're uh, going through the interview. I've brought it to 90 minutes. So I, I shoot for an hour and we hit 90 minutes, but I appreciate your time. Uh, is there anything towards the end now that uh, I think I've hit all the questions. So I appreciate all the people that are joining us live and those of you that have asked questions. If I've missed any of them, I apologize. If I've missed anything like a super chat or anything, I, I'm sorry, I didn't, I don't see it when I'm on the stream yard thing, but uh, is there anything in, as we've been chatting that I uh, over talked or interrupted you and you wanted to make any other points or elaborate on anything? No, not necessarily. Uh, the only thing that um, we really didn't quite get into, and I, you alluded to it, that we might do it later, um, we could talk about where do we go from here on another show because we could go for a couple hours. Um, we always had the desire to um, have multiple gun shops. You know, this was just the start, the launch pad, and we're still kind of struggling with what that looks like. Um, and we kind of pigeonholed us ourselves with the name, like Cape Gunworks, like that only is appropriate to where we live. It doesn't really make sense if you're in, you know, Boston or the South Shore or maybe another state, but, um, so we're still struggling with that, but we, we've kind of put that project on hold just a little bit and we're trying to get the reach of the website to be a little bit bigger at the moment, but eventually we do want to have multiple locations. So that's really where we're headed in the, in the how category. Um, so yeah. uh, that's the goal. I saw a question, but I didn't. He said that we missed this one. So thanks for shouting that out. So his question is, and he's from uh, Oregon. What's your opinion on felons getting the rights back? Should it be automatically, or do you think there should be fees, or do you think felons should never be able to get the rights back? It's a good question. Um, the libertarian in me says, I believe that once they've paid their debt to society, they've paid their debt to society, and they should get their rights back and restored. And, um, you know, maybe if they're a career criminal, then no, but... Uh, on the other hand, um, I think that there's a big difference between violent felons and 
just felonies that are punishable by the amount of time they could serve in jail for some sort of white collar crime or larceny by check or, you know, whatever. That's a lot different than armed robbery of a bank. Um, but, you know, I probably deep down inside err a little bit more towards the freedom side of the equation because of the slippery slope that is inherent to gun control. But at, you get the the gun control extreme, right? So the extreme left is total confiscation. No one can own a gun. The extreme other side of uh, gun freedom is, as my friend likes to put it, uh, machine gun vending machines in elementary schools. So like, I don't think any rational adult would be like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should have machine gun vending machines in elementary schools. So somewhere between total confiscation and machine gun vending machines in elementary schools, we fall and we don't all agree and we don't believe the same across the whole scope of um, gun ownership in America. But I would say I probably lean towards definitely restoring rights of nonviolent felons after they've paid their debt to society, whatever that is, whether it's a fine or a fee or community service or jail time or whatever, probation and uh, whatever it is, you know, I think the crime should be, uh, or the punishment should be appropriate to the crime. Uh, and then maybe even violent felons, if enough time has gone by and they've changed their life, like, it breaks my heart a lot to hear people who are in their forties and fifties and they're paying the price for the sins that they committed when they were 17, 18, 19, and they were stupid young, uh, you know, children on the wrong path that have like settled down, got married, own a business. They're, you know, changed their life around and now they can't even participate in the, the an inherent right, of, as an American. So I would say that person should definitely get their rights back um, for sure. And, you know, I would, I would probably err a little bit more toward the freedom side. Like I remember the old Western shows, like the, the guy would get arrested for a bar fight. They'd go to court and they'd lead him out of the courtroom and hand him his guns back on the way out. You know what I mean? Yep. Get out of jail, give happened. you your guns back and be like, quit yeah, doing it. Mean, that's really what it should be. I mean, so I know that's not a popular opinion today, uh, but frankly, I think that uh, the more guns in society in the hands of responsible people, and yes, by that definition, some irresponsible people will also have them, but I still think we'll be a safer society if more responsible people have open and easier access to uh, obtaining firearms. And that, in, that includes people who might not have had a pristine youth or uh, went through a rough patch in their life. So we've all made plenty of mistakes. Yep. And we're seeing that things aren't static for sure in any direction at all. We're focused on guns and the gun community and topics like laws that have to do with firearms, but, uh, you know, things are in flux all over the place. So I think that, uh, as we go forward, we're not getting, well, people 
debate me on this, but we are getting more open with information and it's really difficult to hide uh, misspending and, and you know the number of people that are incarcerated and stuff like that. So I, I don't think we're gonna see that be ignored forever and never see a solution to that. And as we see solutions to that, then, oh, I was gonna say the, the incentive, if you have committed, like you mentioned, if you're young and you've committed a, a crime, and you have no option, no, no, uh, no future of ever getting rights back. Then, do you have, you know what I mean? Like, what you have seems like you, you're given person limited options. You're creating limited options for people when, unless they demonstrate, you know, irresponsibility, give them a an opportunity to, right, have a better tomorrow without hindering forever on their past. But anyway, yeah, that got into a different question there at the end. But why not? Um, yeah. We've been about 90 minutes. Again, I appreciate you coming on. I know you're busy with everything that's going on. And uh, uh, you were kind of doing some stuff for Father's Day yesterday. So uh, thanks for doing all of this on top of having an active uh, personal life and family life. And it sounds like, you know, you're an active part of the community in lots of different ways besides what we focused on tonight. Yeah, glad to do it. And, you know, uh, I'm not always... I'm always surprised when I end up out there in the public space and uh, talk about me a little bit is kind of funny to me, but on the other hand, I'm happy to, happy to do it. And hopefully it's, you know, been entertaining at the very least uh, for, for some people on the other end. And well, my goal is to do it show behind the scenes a little bit so people can understand that it's not magic. You don't have to, Follow the given recipe. You can uh, uh, be part of what's going on out there. As I was kind of talking off air, but I'll, I've said it before: value your voice. And uh, yeah, so I appreciate you giving people some uh, uh, some authentic insight into your projects and uh, the motivations behind it. Really do appreciate it. Uh, again, uh, we'll chat off air here when it goes off air. I'll have little stuff like buttons I can push, and it'll end, and it'll. Uh, cancel we'll chat a little bit off air if you got the time but uh yeah thanks again thanks everybody who showed up live if you're listening to this in a podcast guess what cape gunworks rapid fire radio is on every one that i'm on plus probably a couple of more platforms so you can listen to it as a podcast uh, you can watch it on youtube you guys record live on wednesday afternoons and like i say they're interactive they're paying attention to what's been done in the youtube part of it it's a fun time You've got your callers coming in from the radio show and the text messages and stuff. Uh, then that show gets recorded and distributed on those radio shows that we mentioned uh, on those different radio platforms. So share those for people. So that's the whole point of radio so that people can listen to it on the way to the range or uh, on the way to go fishing or whatever and have it on in the car with a bunch of people carpooling somewhere. Uh, turn, turn the radio dials when you go to the store to the station so that people hear it in the mornings. You know, there's all kinds of fun stuff you can do to help people out when they got radio shows. And then uh, you've guessed on the Tuesday show. I always mix up the time, but uh, it's a little bit earlier than the Wednesday show, right? Yeah, it's um, called 2A Tuesday, and it's on from basically 2 to 2.45, even though it's really like 2.05 to 2.43 or something like that. But basically 2 to 2.45. And... Uh, we get a lot of callers on that show. Uh, that's one of those shows that really lights up the phone lines and we get a lot of people 
that's on the same it's on the howie car radio network so there's a lot of states that broadcast that and um so it gets a lot of reach and it's on right before howie comes on at three so there's a a lot of uh people tuning in for his show that catch that so it's been a good segment for her in her show so we're going to keep doing it as long as she lets me you know i'll do it <laughs> anytime she asks but uh, well and i haven't been listening to it for a while but it sounds like she's no i don't think she would call herself an expert on second amendment or second amendment issues right. or anything so she's asking you questions like as a person who's asking you questions and you're uh, giving her some insight you know as well as her audience so that's awesome because yeah you know, don't hear too many people that are actually listening that are running radio shows usually they're just uh worried about what knobs are supposed to be clicking and they're saying yeah 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 she's definitely was not like she's not a gun owner um never raised around guns and didn't really even know the argument behind for or against so she's really green and she'll call me like a lot off the air and say hey what's going on with this how do i speak to this or you know what do you think about this and uh, she's her own person too. She forms her own opinions, but uh, it's been good to be able to, you know, give our side and have that outlet that she'll she'll call me, and I think that's great. Rather than her looking at the New York Times for the most popular opinion on gun control. Yeah, no, that's exactly you you hit it right there. That's what I didn't articulate. But she's her show. From what I can tell, is you can tell that she just she goes out and researches and makes an an, an opinion. She's not just regurgitating the the sound bites and when you're able to get across to her some positions and she's able to understand it you know on her time or in her pace that that audience is is is, is got to be following right along with her and understanding at the same pace so mm -hmm. i mean that's you can what's the you know you can tell somebody all day but once they learn it then it's that's a whole nother level right now they've they've figured it out they've just they've, you've right. given them information but they've made the decision they're not just repeating something so anyway, I appreciate that. All right. Well, with that, we will end it this time instead of just saying this uh, thanks all night long. But uh, yeah, we'll stick around here and chat after. Sure. This is my commercial. So if you want to enjoy what we're doing tonight, go check out our store, grab something. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with uh, 2A Tuesday, and we'll be talking about Massachusetts. GearWebsites.com is your source for firearms-based playing cards and books. We also have mugs, shirts, and posters with designs that we've made live. Of course, we have patches. Every Friday is Free Patch Friday. We appreciate your support. Thank you for shopping at GearWebsites.com. Thank you for thank you for supporting our projects. If you'd like to buy us a cup of coffee, check out our Patreon channel. The guys and gals at GunWebsites.com encourage you to take a CCW class every year. Practice at least once a month and carry every day. Thank you for watching gunwebsites.com. Do 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 do.